You're listening to the Global Sales Leader Podcast with your host, Jason Cooper. This series is with Paul Rupert, and I like this uh, interview because Paul's coming from um, the White House. He's actually come from a political career and transferred all of those skills into sales systems for startups and corporates within the telco industry. So I found this quite fascinating because it's slightly different from how other people come into the industry and how we come to respect it. So I'm sure you're going to like this and sure you're going to get a lot out of it. You're listening to Jason Cooper. I'm a sales relationship coach. I help people and teams in their business to exceed at what they do. Hello, good morning, good evening, and good afternoon, and wherever you are in this wide, wonderful, beautiful world that we live in, you're listening to the Global Sales Leader Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Cooper. I'm a sales trainer, sales coach, but I'm also just pivoted to being the sales relationship coach. And the reason why that is, is because when you're in sales, it's all about rapport with the client. It's all about that relationship and establishing that relationship, not for the short term, always for the long term, but there's key elements to that. And I help and support people to do that. And why I do this podcast, I love connecting with new people. I love to learn. I love to grow. The more I learn, the more I grow, the more I can feed forward and helping my clients get better what they do. But today, it's not about me. Well, a little bit about me, but not always about me. I'm speaking to uh, a guest today. He has a phenomenal background, intriguing, slightly different. But uh, what I what I like, um, how he's scaled and grown quite a few companies. So you're very welcome, Paul Rupert, to the Global Sales Leader podcast. Hello, Jason, and all the ships at sea, as they used to say back in the days of radio telephony, I guess. Um, It's a real pleasure to be here. Uh, I think we're going to have a great conversation because I think we also share the same mindset, uh, especially relative to sales, sales systems, the importance of relationships in driving sales. So, Mm, Absolutely. A little bit about yourself. Uh, You're a Harvard political science graduate. You're a patent holder. CEO of a global global point view, strategic advisor, tech CEO, high stakes sales negotiation borders. Uh, over uh, 20 plus years, you've scaled tech companies to a billion. That's phenomenal. Uh, and uh, you've helped create a lot of sort of B2B uh, enterprises. So you've got a really good collective array of backgrounds, which is really quite intriguing. And I want to know how you started and where you've got to because you've um, you've had a, the harvard uh, is massive anyway so having anything from back in harvard is great but what are the anchor points along the way that sort of got you into where you're got done now this so is going to be I'm a just... very long conversation jason uh, i wish that i had had a career looking back uh, you know and i don't want to sound like i'm you know got a, a, a toe in the retirement because that's hardly the case but to look back and think that there was a linear line uh, of demarcation. Interestingly enough, I was listening to another podcast by a guy named Stanley McChrystal, who's a former four-star general uh, who ran special operations commands in the United States Army. And he was interviewing a former CEO of Ford, Ford Motors, and he kind of asked the same question. And the CEO essentially said something to the effect of, well, you know, it was a series of bad decisions on my part with opportunity, unexpected opportunities that opened up along the way. Now, you know, that's, that's exaggerating his humility. But in my case, I've had the privilege of essentially having two careers. Uh, the first career right out of college, uh, I was lucky enough to get a job working for a United States senator and then became what is called a legislative assistant. And then I spent the next decade of my life and my professional career in the political world, which I laddered up, climbed the ladder, so to speak, from working for a U.S. senator, as I mentioned, and then uh, running political campaigns in the United States, uh, and then being a policy advisor 
to a cabinet secretary and then eventually having an opportunity to work inside the White House wow. as a seconded executive, if you will, somebody meaning on loan and um, then uh, exited with a great deal of effort. You know, it, when you get into when you're in the gravity gravitational pull of a large planet like the political world, it's tough to get out. I was able to break into an emerging technology that we all know, uh, we all know now that's so pervasive, which is mobile telephony, your mobile phone. And I got into it at a time when uh, the objective was to seek out um, talent, not necessarily training. And I was uh, offered an opportunity to get into business development role for one of the first GSM operators. And you being in Dublin, Ireland, know what GSM stands for, which is a European radio standard in the telecommunications jargon. Uh, and um, from there, been able to spend the next 20 years in the space um, and luckily enough to have a lot of success in it. So that's kind of it in a nutshell, if you will. So I'm curious uh, by your political background, because if you got up all the way up towards the White House, I would suggest that communication is uh, absolutely key. What made you successful in, because you have to communicate at high levels with lots of different people. So what made you an influencer? What made you a negotiator? What made you, because I think in the political arena, I think you're still selling something. You're still influencing one person to another. So what are those characteristics that you've got that made you to where you got to then? And then where it got you into the, the business? Because I think there's a there's a good uh, transferable skills there but from one to another. Yeah, so this goes into a number of different venues that you've just talked about relative to range of skills uh, and range of experience. So my range is quite wide because of the nature of... Um, any type of uh, career, as I say, you don't get into one thing, very, very few people get into one thing and then you can look at that linear aspects of it. So negotiations, for example, um, I learned how to negotiate selling stereos uh, when I was putting myself through my last year and a half of college and I was very effective at it. I was working for a regional uh, stereo company uh, this is a different era where you could walk into a mall and look at everything from DVD players, videotape players, um, to $10,000, you know, stereo systems that we would be able to put together. And I did that. Uh, and then the next iteration, I graduated from uh, university and then was able to uh, move to Washington, D.C. And I was able to find a job working for a U.S. senator. So I applied those skills to my advantage where somebody else who was the same age at the time, I was 24, 25, hadn't gone through that experience. So being able to, let's say, as I would put it, simplify the complexities of a problem or an issue was an advantage to me. Uh, and I was also personality wise, uh, I know how to be able to put words together. My father was a, a prosecutor, in fact, a lawyer, uh, and I had taken enough courses in college, et cetera, around speech making and public speaking and things like mm -hmm. that and enjoyed that. So it's very much performance art. And you were talking about negotiations, you were talking about sales. So I've covered those two. And when you're even the role that I had in my first job right out of college, um, you are essentially a seller. You are an advocate of a um, something that's conceptual. It's not, it's not concrete in the context of you're selling a product uh, or necessarily you're a service. You're talking about a policy. You're talking about something that's very conceptual. So you've got to be able to make the argument not only on the rationality of it, let's say the ROI of it, but you also have to be able to appeal to the emotional aspects. So in that regard, it was as much about sitting down with staff from other members and saying, look, Here's why your boss, who happens to be a congressman from, let's say, Baltimore, rural Baltimore, should be signing up for this agricultural bill that has to do with economic development um, within, you know, bringing industry and light industry into more rural areas. And here's why that's interesting, because 
your boss is already talking about these things called enterprise zones. And now we're talking about rural development and here's how they marry up. So that was something that um, I guess I brought to the table because of the prior experience. Now, shifting forward, you know, there was that demarcation, as I said, from my political experience, my political career to a private sector career, commercial career. Um, all those skills that I had developed as an exec, as a uh, political executive now were directly applicable to my engagement in the private sector. Again, simplifying complexities. Well, I came in doing business development and then very quickly was given a product development portfolio. I didn't know anything about the technology, but I was mm -hmm. told by the guy who was bringing me into his team, he said, I don't, I'm not looking for engineers, I'm looking for business people. Engineers tend to be um, swooned by the technology. I'm like, oh, okay, that's kind of interesting. You know, he even said, you know, I, don't want, I want guys who can kill their children. Concept being, if you got an idea, you put it together and then you take it forward and then realize, nope, it's not going anywhere. So throw it away and pivot on to something else. What did you learn from that? You know, the whole fail fast, fail quickly. And, and that way you'll be better in terms of being able to pursue success, et cetera. So, so the key um, that I'm always intrigued uh, by is the characteristics that go through the mindset of someone like yourself and everyone else that I speak to. It's what goes through the thought patterns to make you successful. Uh, is it the persuasiveness? Is it the negotiation thing that you're doing? Or is it the linguistics, the language that you're doing? Or is it the mind, the mindset? I know there's a, a flurry of lots of mindset. Um, you know, some may say this is a soft skill, but again, in my case, um, I've applied my trade in the private sector uh, in the global arena. Mm -hmm. First off, the technology that I'm involved in is telecommunications. You know, telecommunications network as it exists today was once characterized to me as the most complex machine ever made by man because it's mm -hmm. constantly changing, constantly evolving. It is comprehensive, comprehensible. Um, and as a reflection of that, the space that I'm in as a messaging guy, if you will, um, I can get to any human being on the planet, regardless of where they are, and be able to communicate them with them via text messaging at minimum. Um, so that mindset, uh, again, I was probably genetically predisposed to work globally because I happen to be half French uh, from the time that I was a child. My mother used to drag me back to Europe for the grand tour. So that gave me a perspective that was different than what I had grown up with. So that was a shift. And she made sure that I understood that, um, you know, with lots of different lessons, lessons, often at the expense of Americans, um, even though I'm, you know, a true blue American kid uh, growing up in suburban Cleveland, Ohio. But at the same time, for two and a half months every year, I was seeing what it was like on a French beach town called La Rochelle or seeing what I Paris know it very well. Yeah. And especially in Paris. I mean, my mother, um, I had set rules. I could not like when I was eight, nine, 10 years old, I could not cross a street that led, that was kind of a um, high traffic street to a mall that was only about a half a mile away from my house. I mean, it was literally at the end of the street where the park was, here's the street. I could not cross that street. That was the rule because there was too much traffic. And yet my mother had no qualms, no concerns about here I am 300 meters or so, maybe a half a kilometer from um, the Trulli Gardens and I'm the same age. And she would say, go play in the park, meaning the Trulli Park, you know, which is bordering the Louvre. And, um, you know, I'll come, come back in about two hours or so. She gave me my, you know, I had a little watch back then, you know, and that's what I did. And it was, that was her environment and she had a different set of the environment to where we lived, which was, again, very safe com suburban community. It was a mind, shed, mind, excuse me, mind shift and being able to have an understanding of that. So I've been able to build on those opportunities along the way. And even in the context of negotiations, we could talk about how to be able to approach you know, global or international negotiations which are very different than, let's say, Western negotiations. Um, I've so what, what are the differences between that, between European negotiations and U.S. negotiations? What, what's, is there any difference in how you would... I personally that? don't think there's much of a difference between, let's say, the U.S. and Europe. The reality is that, especially in a global 
industry. Um, we, we've gotten to a level where we can understand each other very effectively if I'm across, across the desk from a Frenchman or a German, et cetera. There may be, you know, these are in some cases stereotypical in the context of how do they approach a problem. And as long as you're open to the differences of approach, then you're, you're, you're going to be able to surf that wave to manage yeah. the differences. Okay. In other cases, um, you know, I, I did deals in China and, and very quickly got um, lectured by a longstanding China hand and lectured in the good sense. He gave me guidance as to, first off, you're going to find that questions are not going to be asked. Um, that's just a cultural thing in terms of doing business at times there and how they go through their educational system, which is different than how we do. Mm. And this is an American who had spent almost 10 years in Hong Kong. And so, so you need to be able to plant what you think are going to be the questions that are usually uh, raised in, in your pitches. Because the things that I was doing was meeting to meet or face-to-face -face meetings where it might last an hour or two. And then I even built that out to even three to four hour presentations. Um, where I would bring in my entire team. The entire team included a finance individual, a technology individual, a pre-sales technologist, as well as me as being the strategist. And I ran essentially like a television show where each of these were covered off. And the objective, the objective was to overcome any objection in the room. So an engineer couldn't kill a business idea because he's still waiting for the business guy to actually make mm. those decisions. So it was tactical. It was also strategic and it was also how we did things differently. So back to your question. Yes, there are different characteristics of how people do business. And as, as well as when you start negotiating contracts, you have to think it's just not me and you talking about these elements of the contract. It's okay, you're a procurement guy. So what's the procurement organization look like? And how is that, how is that juxtaposed against the commercial guys? And then being able to do what I call, you know, what's the executive mapping here relative mm -hmm. to who has responsibility? Where is the P&L roll up to? And this is all part of the sales process. That you're so what are the tips there, Paul? Because um, I'm always intrigued by giving some really good golden nuggets for the audience. So in negotiation, especially in, I think we're all salespeople in one shape or form. I think political people are salespeople. They're selling an idea. They're selling a concept. They're selling whatever else. They might not see themselves that way, but I always think everyone pretty much sure. is. But in negotiation point, and um, I was reading the book called, from Oren Clough, Flip the Script. I don't know if you read it, but mm -hmm. it talks about at a certain point is you just have to shut up. And of course. also make yeah. sure that they come up with the idea, but you plant the seed. Yes. So there's always... Um... A, there's a very fine line between manipulation and persuasion yeah, in the context of sales. That's first and foremost. And, you know, you can, some people go to sales is really all about manipulation. Well, it's as much about persuasion and being able to understand what you want. Listen more, talk less. Now, you've asked me some questions and I've been going on and, you know, the internal voice is like, wait, you know, give air to the other you know, the other person in the conversation. So I'm sensitive to that as well. Um, tips, you know, it, it really comes down to my perspective has always been qualify, qualify, qualify. Continue right. to ask more and more questions and don't be bashful about the questions. Um, sell, uh, excuse me, tell, don't sell. Yeah. Okay. The selling piece is, you know, this is what I've got and this is, the, my, my selling of this opportunity is usually based on what my perception of what you want of it is, but you may have a completely different perception of what this is in terms of sell this pen. And the only way for me to know that is I just got to have a conversation with you. Um, you had a guest on recently, I think his name was uh, Max Compton or Matt Compton, you know, and listening to him, he was really trying to uh, take away the human factor in all of this mm -hmm. but i think you'll probably agree with me that this is as much about emotional response first and rational justification absolutely second. okay it's uh, the way our brains are formed uh dr uh, paul mclean back in the 1960s 
uh, created this theory, uh, which is the three-layered brain, the, the outer layer of the brain, the inner layer of the brain, and the fight, flight, or freeze. But the inner layer, which is the um, limbic system, uh, neocortex, which is the outer layer, which is the central processing unit, which crunches all the numbers, but we are emotional creatures. So we go with emotions first, and then we back up everything with uh, facts, figures, and everything else. But you lead with emotion first, but you've also got to be empathy and empathetic to sitting inside Paul Rupert's head, yes. as opposed to me guessing what you're thinking, as opposed to that holistic approach of really trying to understand your point of view, your position, and then create a metaphor, a story based around the scenario which you can understand. And I find that area absolutely fascinating, especially oh. at high stakes. Yeah, yeah, no question about it. And you know, back to the the nuggets that you were looking for, you know, the what are the sound bites? The sound bites are. It really comes down to this requires work. This is not something that is done flippantly or quickly. Um, you've got to have a sense of what you're walking into, and even their perceptions of you, and uh, what you bring to the table as a value proposition. And then drilling farther and farther. You know, it's like. Um, as Steve Jobs always talked about, you know, it's all about being able to tap into unarticulated need. So, you know, do your homework before you walk in. A great example of that is I once did a deal with Singtel and, um, you know, it was about maybe nine months, usually the sales cycles in the process that I'm involved in um, run about a year, a year or more. Uh, I closed a deal with Vodafone. It took us two years to close that deal, but they said no first you know back to the nuggets no it's just a deferred yes yeah okay no means not right now that's uh, right that's a friend right. of mine alex stern uh who um created a big crm platform multi-billionaire now but he's he said that when i interviewed him he said exactly the same thing no means not right now but it can it, it it's what it's an area that you get into down the line there's obviously something stopping them from moving forward yeah, and in that regard, with the Vodafone play, um, I just asked, and again, I talked to this guy who was the head of all product for Vodafone and all the Vodafone affiliates, it all kind of rolled up to him in the corporate side. And this was something that was a greenfield opportunity. He wasn't familiar with the means to be able to transmit messages from the GSM world to the non-GSM world and the technology behind it. And I said, look, just agree to meet with me when I come back here, let's say in three months, six months, whatever it may, might be, I'd like to just keep you updated. You know, can we at least start the relationship so that we can have this dialogue and I can learn from you and you can learn from me? It was like, sure, I'd be happy to do that. Time went by, guess what? Vodafone actually in, in, made an increase, made, made an investment in Verizon and Verizon was one of our first customers. So then we were leveraging Verizon against Vodafone and within a re kind of reasonable, maybe not two years, but they came around to, yeah, let's do this. So that's the other thing. And then the last piece, um, as I was saying with, with the Singtel, I asked the gentleman when he said, yeah, look, I want to do this. And I was in Singapore. I was like, okay. So, um, and I remember his name is Andy Tang. And I'm like, so Andy, um, I'm just for my own edification because I'm always checking myself, my own thoughts, you know. Uh, tell me, why us? And he was like, well, that's easy. You're here. You've been by three times in the last six months. Now, you may say you're a startup, but if you're a startup, you've made an investment. This is a strategic initiative, as you've described it to me. And meanwhile, your competitors just talk to me over the phone, most of the time in the middle of the night, you know, and that told me, aha, who's ever talking to him in the US isn't even time shifting to the prospects comfort time, you know, comfortable zone as to whether it's 9 a.m. to let's say 6 p.m. And instead they're like, oh, sure, let me call you. It's gonna be two o'clock my time. Is that okay with you? You know, at like 2 a.m. my time, I'm gonna take that call. So, <laughs> you know, that was his perspective was the fact that you are here telegraphs so much more than what you might be trying to sell to me and also the people behind you. And I so then- the learnings of that is, is quite, is to really understand the client and their 
where they are in relation to space. Like if they're not in your country, that you go on to their time zone, not That's your right. time zone. But you also speak in their language. And I want all the listeners to really understand that because if you are on a global stage, you really got to understand where they are in relation to space. You really got to understand the nuances that goes on in their minds as opposed to what goes on in your mind and also follow up in the right time and the right space. It's all about following up. If they say follow up in a month, like you, you might want to be slightly quicker than that because there, there's someone else behind you doing the same thing or similar. That's right. And you've got to be at the right place at the right time. And it's just phenomenal that so many people out there in the world and that I keep hearing about do not do the follow-up. Or, yeah, or no question not. about that. Yeah. And even make the follow-up easy and jump ahead of them. You know, almost in the context of if you, well, you're a sales guy, forgive me in terms of the label, but the reality is, you know, it's like Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, always be closing. Then it becomes it becomes dependent. How hard are you pressing? You're just looking for commitment, which is, you know, in the old days, that's the tie down. And the commitment then leads to a close. So being able to have that, um, that systematic approach. And then the bottom line is always make it easy for the, the customer, the prospect to make the purchase. And that may be financial. Um, you know, I used to you know, we, we created a pricing model for the service that we were offering that was going to feed more traffic to us. Now, if you just take that as a linear relationship of A to B, that means that you're going to be buying my service. You're going to be sending all this messaging. I'm going to be able to deliver it like Federal Express, if you will, to all these so different Paul, destinations. Just on that, and apologies to jump in because I'm really sure. fascinated. Um, how did you build up that trust and how did you build that credibility based on that scenario because I'm, I'm fascinated by that because this is all helpful for everyone else that's out there <laughs> excuse me many helpful hints here um <clears throat> so engendering trust is as much about being able to communicate with each other and engendering trust is as much about i always joke um you know i'm of an era that i used to watch cowboy movies when I was a child that were on Saturday afternoons, you know? And there was always like, and this is maybe because of my own heritage, there was always this French guy who was a trapper, you know? And the trapper always was able to help the American cavalry talk to the Native Americans, you know, because he was the in-between person. Mm -hmm. Well, that's exactly what I did, applying my train in terms of messaging and being able to engender trust on both sides in the sense of a new prospect Here's the opportunity. Let, you know, take a moment to listen what I've got. This is a new technology, which it was at the time. And here's how we are leveraging it. We're not the only ones to develop this technology because a whole bunch of different companies did at the same time. We ended up being the winner at the end of the table. Um, so being able to understand, for example, um, one of the advantages I had of being coming into this business, and this gets into the arcane elements of executive roles inside companies, I was an international roaming director for what is now AT&T. Now, what does an international roaming director do? Well, he's the commercial guy that sits down with, you know, Airtel in Ireland or yeah, yeah. China Telecom in Beijing and say, okay, we're going to have customers of ours in your network. You're going to have customers of our not in our network. You, we want to be able to exchange messaging and we want to be able to exchange voice minutes. How do we do that? Here's what our charges are. Here's what your charges are. What is it going to look like? And we do all the negotiations behind all of that. Mm -hmm. And so when I came into this role later in this new startup, I already had a sense of here's how these guys operate and here's where we are going to be able to fit in. So I was communicating at their level, you know, already saying, here's something new. I know you've already seen this in other venues, but this is something completely different. So I was engendering trust with, let's say, technical acumen. And then the other aspects of, you know, if you're in a startup, there is always that trust of risk. Well, I'm not sure I want to sign up with a startup. And that's when, um, you know, if you start playing the game of here's what we've got, you need access to what we've got. 
and what we've got needs access to you, which is why there is a mutual utility in having this connection. And so what I just said here was, okay, I've got access into Verizon, which is a non-GSM radio format. And we've got the same thing with T-Mobile, which is a GSM radio format, meaning we've got the U.S. marketplace as an advantage. Um, you are still trying to build that out, and we can do it faster for you. And that became the business rationale of, yeah, okay, let's do this. So that business became what's called messaging interconnectivity. And then the next generation became messaging aggregators. And today, that, that next iteration is called CPaaS, which stands for Communications Platform as a Service. That's kind of a model, a commercial model that's describing in reality the technical elements of knitting together SMS, voice, over-the-top messaging like Viber, like mm -hmm. uh, Facebook messaging, um, like any other type of push messaging like that, as well as email, all within the same context. And then, you know, benefiting the end consumer as to, well, you may want to have a telephone call, and I, being 20 years younger, I wish, um, mm -hmm. would rather be doing this on text messaging and being able to shift that business but you've got to have all those different pieces in place to be able to integrate and offer in a CPaaS space, which is what I do today. And I also help enterprises assess how is the best means for me to communicate with my end consumers or even with other machines. So that's kind so of... What's the... What's the I, I'm, I'm digging deep here. We're all over the map here. <laughs> I also want to understand the process because everything is a process. There's got to be a process for any type of business that you work with. But what is a really good process uh, to help enable others to get what they want in business or in sales or whatever? What, what is a really good process that you, that you advise people to do? Well, let's go through, let's say, a case study in the context. Okay. You are a, an enterprise, and um, let's say you are a newly launched airline in Southeast Asia. And we'll even call you Air Asia because there's actually an Air Asia. There is. Um, and um, you want to be able to send out alerts and notifications relative to the flight status to your customers. You also want to be able to send out confirmation of their accounts and also confirmation of their reservations. How can you do that? Well, in the old days, you might be sending email, but in reality, it's much more effective and much more efficient. Uh, and much more valuable for you to use text messaging. So that's the first case. So how do we do this? Well, okay, maybe we need to contact Singtel. Well, sure, but you've got 20% of your traffic is, meaning your, your passengers are coming out of Hong Kong and another 10% of Malaysia. So who's gonna be able to do that? We don't have some guy who's, how many, how many countries are there? How many mobile network, how, I mean, how does this all work? Yeah, yeah. Well, there are companies that I've been involved with, um, including Infobip, Cinch, Cineverse. These are the larger players in the space. Twilio gets a lot of attention. Um, who then go to AirAsia or AirAsia, you know, makes a call to and say, we need to be able to put this in place. How do we do it? Oh, that's easy. This is how we do it. Well, how do you do it technologically? Well, there are different types of connections between your enterprise IT configurations and our network. And our network is configured with IT connectivity, but also mobile network operator connectivity. Mm -hmm. And that's how these messages are then delivered. Well, the connectivity, which is the technical elements of it, require commercial agreements. You know, the operators, let's say CSL in Hong Kong saying, wait a minute, we're not just going to let you send messages in here. Okay, that's not how this works. You know, we've got a, you know, a billion dollars or five billion or 50 billion dollars. If you were AT&T, well over a trillion dollars of, of investments in the network, both wireline and wireless. So we're going to need to get paid for it. It's the same kind of structure, believe it or not, the systems that are in place for the postal service. So when you send a text message via your mobile phone, and let's say you being, you know, Eartel, as I say, or Vodafone mm -hmm. Ireland that you might be a customer of. You want to send that message off to uh, Verizon, to me, as a Verizon customer. Okay, well, you send that message off, and it's very much like you just sending me a postcard. And on that postcard, there's a stamp. And that stamp you already paid for. And so 
Vodafone, in this case, Vodafone Ireland, you've already paid on your subscription for you to be able to send that text message. Mm-hmm. I get it to my phone and Verizon says, oh, okay, this came from Vodafone Ireland, this customer, this is in our, you know, our network now. So we then bill them for that one message, which would be, you know, a little under one cent. If it was AirAsia that we were talking about earlier, that that message would be very, very cheap, um, not from a consumer side, but just the transiting side to, you know, like three cent, three quarters of a cent. This is kind of the the model that the commercial elements of it. And then it flows through. It's much like McDonald's. So if you look at McDonald's hamburger in the U.S. where it's 99 cents, they're really only making about five cents of margin on that 99 cents. But guess what? Five cents times 25 billion hamburgers sold in the last 10 years. Yeah, it becomes quite significant. And that's the numbers. That's the model. That's the process, the system that's involved Mm -hmm. in this. So you're selling not only the opportunity to reach an end customer, which is going to be um, an additional value that AirAsia will have and be able to transfer to their customer, um, but you're also enabling a technology that um, makes things much more efficient, much faster, uh, and much more consumable by the end consumer. I mean, I'm, I'm not the guy who is the procurement IT guy who's looking at uh, what's the ROI of this box versus that box. I'm the guy who's looking at what's the innovation development that is going to be having an impact within 18 months to three years, and why is the consumer going to find this more convenient? Excuse me, I was just no worries. I had to put myself no. on mute. Uh, so no what's your proudest achievement along the way that made you suddenly went, I, I really like this, I'm really good at what I do. So to get you where you are today, what, what made you do that? Or what helped well, you? You know, what, as, you, as you've just tapped into the animation that I've been focusing on, the international pieces of all this, um, you know, and I, I guess I'll, given, you know, since you talked about Harvard, not that Harvard is a good thing or a bad thing, but just in the context of, yeah, I'm, I guess I'm overly educated. So I'll make a book reference. You know, there's a guy named Daniel Pink that you probably have read. And um, he talks about um, um, combinatorial thinking. And as you go through an experience, you know, you're not always, uh, you know, again, you're not going through a linear equation of, okay, X plus two plus three Y. Oh, we just did three Y. Now we're going to be expecting that, you know, it's going to be two Z, whatever. doesn't work that way. You know, you're surfing the wave and all of a sudden you get this epiphany as to, aha, and that's where the international piece opened up for me in the context of um, being able to be successful in these opportunities in the startup. But what I was doing was leveraging the experience that I had in a Fortune 100 company, a global Fortune 100 company. And then each time along the way, again, because of my mindset from my political background, you know, you were, we were talking about it a little bit. One of the things I've observed from enterprises is that they never think that well, what's their competitor doing? And that there is a competitor on the field as opposed to, hey, this is my product. I know you're going to love this product. It's going to be buying. You're going to be buying this product. And then somebody else is like, wait a minute, there are three other guys. You're selling that same product. Yeah, exactly. So what's your positioning relative to the positioning, the, the competitive dynamics of the market that you're involved in? So I, I started applying all these things and realizing, wow, this is a competitive advantage that I have. Um, and again, that that was not... That was not something I planned out for the future. It was, here's this experience, layer it on to that experience, layer it on to that experience. I often talk about with people who've worked with me, there are carom shots that you've got to be open to. Uh, again, collaborative thinking, uh, yeah, collaborative thinking in the context of, um, you may be an orchestra director, you may have been trained as a piano player, but you've mm-hmm. got to be able to communicate with the tuba player, the drum player, you know, the French horn, the clarinetist, and being able to bring it all together. And you're the conductor. That's right. And so that becomes, uh, that was the thing that I started realizing that's my advantage, as well as the strategic aspects of, um, you know, where do we want to go? What's, you know, as I, uh, in my consulting, I always say, start with the answer. So where is it that you want to go? So let's make an assessment of snapshot of what you've got today. What's the gap? And then what are the resources that we can apply to the gap? And even here, another system 
approach that I learned from the political world. Uh, you know, I was guided, taught that there are five resources in, in any endeavor that we all have, which is time, money, people, meaning numbers, talent, and will. And once I got into the, um, the private sector, or especially in technology, I said, there's a sixth, and that's technology. So looking at all these things, you know, it doesn't always mean the fastest, because guess what? You know, the Great Wall of China and the Great Pyramids were built over a long, long time with lots and lots of people, and it's still standing. But if you want to be this, I've just got to jump in here. Sure, so sure. If you were looking at because you sound like you've got a quite an analytical mind mindset. Certainly, the way that you you. I'm not an engineer, though. <laughs> You're not an engineer, but there are plenty of engineers. But um, engineers are, are quite intriguing how they think. But you're quite an analytical thinker in the way. How do you um, bring out data but make it come alive in the world of not convincing someone but actually telling someone in a story about how wonderful sure. data is? But how can you translate that into... So you you got to knit it together. So one piece of data is not going to be the, um, the kill shot, if you will, um, relative to an opportunity. And so I look at things in the context of a number of different pieces of data. I mean, for example, um, one of the things I do is uh, I'm called by private equity and financial firms, investment firms that are looking to make investments in the telecommunications space. And specifically right now, relative to this segment called CPAS. And so recently, you know, a banker in Europe was talking to me about a, a company. And he's like, you know, look, Paul, they're, they're making projections that there's going to be a, an annual 20% compound annual growth rate for what they project for the next five years in terms of their, um, their revenues. What do you think of that? And I'm like, okay, well, this is a messaging business. Right now, what's going on, another piece of data is that most analysts are, are assessing the marketplace that it's going to be about a 30 to 35% compound annual growth rate for the next five years. Why? Because of the dynamics of the pandemic. Why? Because people are getting more and more acclimated with messaging in a variety of uses that just didn't exist 18 months ago, like mm -hmm. curbside service. Okay. You know, there, I went through my own experience buying something at Best Buy over here. And I counted eight messages that I exchanged as I pulled up, waiting for it, being delivered, and then the follow-up. So that creates all kinds of volume increases. So yep. I then reached out to another friend who's at that time, um, who was running sales for one of the largest uh, CPAS players based in Europe. And I was like, so tell me what your projections, your sales projections are. Sales guy is a sales guy relative to the dynamics of what's going on in the market. You know, and he knows me, trusts me. He was like, yeah, Paul, we expect probably 41% is what I'm projecting for the next three years. Wow, 41%. Okay, let's go back to the banker now in the case study. I'm like, look, bottom line is that the analysts are expecting that this is going to be a 30 to 35%. I then checked with a, with a practitioner in the space who's going to have to meet the number, mm -hmm. and he's projecting 40. So this company that you're looking at is saying that they're going to get 20% year on year for the next five years is sandbagging you. So not one piece of data. It's an amalgamation. It's really a mosaic. Um, mm -hmm. There are times, you know, just as another side, but um, why did I end up in Washington, D.C.? Well, I got recruited by a three-letter intelligence agency in the United States called the Central Intelligence Agency and went through their entire process. This is right out of college. You know, this is there's nothing, you know, sinister or secretive about this. This is all public. This is how they find people. And um, so you have to read a number of books. I think it was like 20 books were on the um, reading list. And it was a six-month process. Obviously, I didn't get in. But in learning about how, you know, intelligence analysts work and how they're able to pick up data from a number of different pieces, and granted, it's been, you know, let's say a sideline interest of mine throughout my life, um, you know, I started realizing, okay, this is all about mosaics. You know, you're taking a piece of information here, 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 and there. And that information may not seem to connect at all back to that collaborative thinking, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, 
you know, and then realizing, wait, the picture's here. It's really quite clear. This is what we need to do. And here's how we need to do it. Now, if you were looking, if you were really linear, you wouldn't be able to make that jump. You wouldn't be able to step back or project forward. And that's another aspect of, again, how I look at things is very nimble, both humility and agility. Humility in the sense that, hey, I don't have all the answers. Okay. So then it's the agility to be able to pivot and get information that may seem not, you know, um, not germane to the problem. And then realizing, wait a minute, here's the connection. Here's the carom shot. A friend of That's mine. Way too long Soho. an answer, though, <laughs> Jason. <laughs> oh, no. A friend of mine, Ed Soho, in California, um, is a phenomenal storyteller, but he's one of these people that visualizes stuff, but he connects the dots between each scenario. And he literally has a, a visual image in front of him where he's seeing the dot there and he pushes it over there, like a mind visualized mind map, but you can actually see it in front of him. I find that absolutely phenomenal. Yeah, people can actually see things from a really good holistic point of view, like yourself. But you can see the things in front of you, and you're looking at it. Uh, yeah, easily orientated. So the question I was going to ask you, so you've um, spoken quite a bit about processes and uh, technology, but if you were interviewing you, what would you actually suggest to yourself? Oh, and say to yourself? Is, you know, I, I've listened to a number of your podcasts in preparation for this, and this is one of those questions. I was like, that's a good question. Um, you know, so the question is, if I'm interviewing myself, right, for a job, and then what am I going to ask myself, right? Well, um, the question is, if you were, if there was two polls in the room, and Paul one, which is you, and Paul two. Paul two was just throwing questions back at you, but it's really to yourself. What would you actually say to yourself? Oh God. <laughs> um, what gets you going? And what we've been talking about is what gets me going. Okay, we've been talking about, um, let's say analytical capabilities, um, problem solving. I mean, a good friend of mine once pointed out to me and he hardly travels globally at all. He's like, you know, you like to go to all these new places because you love problem solving at the nth moment right there. I'm like, what do you mean? And he's an engineer. And it was like, you get off the plane and you're facing a scenario that you've never faced before. You may have just gotten, you know, because we were talking about I had gone to Hungary and I had never been to Hungary before. And he was using this as part of, this was on the, in a bar at the end of a golf, a round of golf with him, you know, and of course mm -hmm. he killed me. Um, and he started laying this out, you know, and it was one of these epiphanies as to, wow, you know, I guess a good friend needs to be able to provide that insight because you don't think about that yourself. So, you know, back to, what motivates me is the things that we've just been talking about commercial opportunity convenience to consumers making an impact whether it's in the public realm or in the private sector realm because you know i never got into messaging because i thought it was going to be something that was going to be measured in the teens of trillions on an annualized basis for every human being on the planet but as i started getting involved and was we, you know, success and things were growing and realizing, wow, I guess I've actually done something significant here in a very, very small way, you know, and even pointing out when you talk about raising companies and, and taking them to liquidity events and high valuation, wasn't me. I wasn't, you know, there are a whole bunch of people involved in that, that boat, you know, and, you know, we're all stroking away and pulling away you know, in our own way, some fit in better than others. And some have a sense of, hey, you know, this is the way we need to go. Okay, yeah, good, you steer, you know. So um, that's my perspective back to humility and agility. And then the context of how, how do we expand this beyond farther and farther afield? Mm -hmm. uh, and then how, how do you tap into that as your motivation? Awesome. So how can people find out more about yourself? Well, you know, I'm always open to having, uh, being able to provide insight to emerging companies uh, or companies who want to move into uh, new geographies, these are the kind of areas, or even developing thesis for strategic 
um, strategic thesis as well as mergers and acquisitions. You can find me on LinkedIn under Paul R. Rupert, my middle initial. You can also find me at my website, which is globalpointview.com. We have that uh, down below on the ticker. So oh, I see thrown around, but for the scrolling audience, by at the moment on the Chiron. Um, you know, and obviously LinkedIn is probably the easiest way for you to reach me, as well as my email, which is p r u p p e r t at g p v l t d dot com. Awesome. Thank you so much, Paul, for giving us a really good, insightful um, interview today uh, about different areas of sales, business, strategy, leadership, uh, uh, linguistics, language, uh, lots of big negotiations. I mean, yeah, we needed together a lot of different, a lot of different things here. You know, my 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 past experience as a political operator would be like, wait a minute, you're too far off the map. There are three points I want you to communicate. You got to do it in three minutes. Go. Well, yeah. we, we're well outside of that that range. Really good. True pleasure. I want to make sure that the audience gets enough. So you've been listening to the Global Sales Leader Podcast. I'm your host, and it's all about finding golden nuggets that you can learn more from people like Paul, people like myself. So you can invest time and learn because the growth mindset, as we know, is what people are looking for now and all these wonderful soft skills to make sure that you're the best version of yourself. So appreciate that again. Thank you so much. It's been great to be here. And I would only say one thing to that, that conclusion, the capstone to the conversation. I would say that instead of soft skills, these are sharp skills. People skills. That's, That's what right. I like to say. People That's skills. Right. Yep. Thanks for listening to the Sales Leader Podcast with your host, Jason Cooper. If you like this podcast and you like all the others, please go through the archive of over 70 podcast shows that I've had and delivered. Please, if you like this or you like other podcasts that I've presented and interviewed other people, if you can give it a five-star rating, it's always very much appreciative.